Welcome to Rail Evolution, the podcast where we dive into the most exciting developments and innovations in the rail industry. I'm your host, Amos Barziv, and I'm thrilled to present our second episode. It's ATO time. In this episode, we're hosting Greg Herbeck, founder and CEO of Railspire. We will delve into autonomous train operations and its current applications. Greg will share his insights and experiences with this groundbreaking technology. Together, we will explore and explain how ATO is revolutionizing the rail industry today, examining its potential to increase efficiency, safety, and sustainability. Present Greg Rebeck. How are you, Greg? I'm doing fantastic. We are doing some exciting things here out in the North American rail freight industry, and, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So, Greg, if you may, can you explain to me a bit about what you do, where did you came from, and who are Railspire? So, Railspire was founded uh, two and a half years ago by myself, former colleague, Lecter Hightower, who I had worked with in previous roles. And another gentleman, Dr. Bradley Howard, who I had also worked with over the last decade across multiple companies. You know, myself has been working in automation technologies for coming up on now almost 20 years, starting out with GE transportation, doing remote control locomotives, distributed power, and even into the energy management sector with Trip Optimizer, working through all the, you know, some of the major players, meeting Brad at New York Airbrake, working on the leader program and working through the Rio Tinto Auto Hall program, which is the world's first fully autonomous driverless brake train in the world, working through different predictive uh, modeling at a company called Predicto in Atlanta, that, to working at Hitachi together, doing video intelligence and mobility as a service. You, you might say RailSpire are rail automation experts? Yes. So both uh, Brad and myself, we've worked on all the major energy management platforms that kind of make up that ATO space for the mainline operation, uh, both here in North America and internationally. We were responsible for the uh, driving strategy engine that went into the auto haul program um, through New York Air Brakes Leader Program. And uh, you know we accomplished that over a five-year period. And so we have a really deep knowledge and we've taken those you know battle scars, if you will, and, you know, apply them to how do we solve these yard problems. Impressive. So what is the most important and even crucial factor for true autonomous train operations? So I, I think the most important thing is providing the system with operational context. And so I'll, I'll kind of go back to our friends in the automotive space where they started building out autonomous vehicles, autonomous trucks. And they quickly realized that just because the, the car can, can drive itself, it's not enough information. It's not enough data to make it a safe operation. And so they started like, oh, well, we need to know about traffic lights, signaling system. We need to know about other vehicles on the road. Yeah, we need to know about the operational context. So, that, you know, you started hearing things like vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to vehicle. And now they have the, the, this vehicle to everything, V to X, right? It's all incumbent. So like, how do I take this vehicle and immerse it into its operating environment so that it can have the awareness that a driver does. Well, it's the same thing in the rail side of it, right? You have a locomotive, and if you're going to have autonomous operations, locomotives need to be aware of the other locomotives. They need to be aware of pedestrians, operators, and crew, and folks on the ground. It needs to be aware of the signaling system, right? And kind of brought that vehicle to everything to make locomotive to everything. 
And that's really where I think that the key is, it's just not investing in the locomotive control space. It's just not investing in the signaling space. It's that holistic. When people look at automation, I often use the analogy of like watching a bunch of little kids play soccer. A bunch of toddlers start playing soccer, little kids. What's the first thing they do? The whole team runs towards one ball and then the ball get kicked over here and they all kind of swarm over there. And that's kind of what's happening in automation. Everybody's kind of either, you know, focusing, oh, but we're going to, we're going to optimize locomotive control. And then they'll swing over here and they'll say, oh, no, we're going to optimize routing and, and movement. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and railroading is made up of all these things, right? You have locomotive control, you have the operations, the tasks, you have the, the network management, the routing, you have the telecommunications, and you got to bring it all under a solid single platform and optimize that as a platform to optimize the rail operation so that you actually have the impact. When we harmonize all those pillars kind of together, we call that orchestration, right? You need to orchestrate your operations, all right? Really treat the automation as a tool, not the end solution. That is the key to not only automation, but really recognizing its value. This will be the pivot point, basically. That's what you're saying. Yes. Another thing is we often talk about the technology, the you know command and control interfaces, the video intelligence. All the really cool kind of geeky stuff, but there's sensors, cyber, yeah, analysis, yeah. AI, right. all those. Yeah, that, that tends to be the focus. Well, there's another side of it. There's a, an operational change management side of it, right? Now you have all this automation. Well, now you need to adjust your, your operations to utilize that automation. You have this new tool and it can unlock a lot of things, but it wasn't meant to keep doing things the way you, you do it today. You got to adapt and evolve your rail operations to make use of it, right? And there's new operating paradigms of how you can utilize crew members, how you can do different switching exercises, how do you change power and do things. That doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes training, it takes you know time. Change is hard and change does not happen ever quickly. How long do you think it will take for a full implementation of autonomous train operations? It's going to be ever-evolving window. So if we kind of take a look at you know, kind of the different stages of automation, you got one in the spectrum, you got completely human-controlled kind of what they've been doing for 100 plus years. And on the other side of the spectrum, you know, what we call level five is completely autonomous robotic trains. There's no human in loop whatsoever. And so where we're at today is with kind of with the energy management systems on the main line where like the aerospace industry, right? With a flight. So yeah, yeah I, I always give this example. I know exactly what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And in energy management, you know, the, the crew brings the train out of the yard, gets it up to speed about 15 miles an hour, and then hands it over to the cruise control, right? Whether that's strip optimizer or leader or tailor or whatever. And then generation of that technology is, and it will operate the train. The, the engineer is still, or driver is still there to watch over things, still responsible for the brakes. And even that is evolving now with that energy management systems are actually prompt the engineer to make brake application. And I think very shortly in the next year or so, we'll see the engine management systems get approval to actually actuate the brakes themselves. So it'll kind of be like that adaptive cruise control you experience in your car. The, the role of a pilot in the plane, right? He does the takeoff, gets it up to altitude, and then hands the controls over to the computer. You know, sits back, relax, so to speak. And then when it when you get to your destination, they take back over and you bring it down uh, and for landing. And if there's ever an issue during flight, the pilot can take back over. That is kind of where we're at today on mainline automate. Like I said, the crew comes in, brings the locomotive out of the yard, gets up to speed, hands it over to the control system, goes on its way. If there is an exception or, or something that needs to be handled by the engineer or driver, they take over, they deal with it, and then they can hand it back. 
But then when they get towards the yard, start slowing down, the engine and driver takes back control and brings it in that last mile. That's where we are today. You know, 12 to 18 months, we'll start to see what we call zero to zero, which is rather than the crew having to bring it out of the yard and take it back in, you know, those energy management systems will be able to start, take off and bring it all the way to stop that zero to zero. That'll happen over the next, you know, 12 to 18, maybe even 24 months. So let's just call it two years. Okay. Once it gets to the yard, what happens? And so that, that's kind of where Railfire comes in and what we're trying to solve. You know, we look at, you know, how can we do that last mile where a train sits outside the yard, crew can depart, and then the, the tower from the yard can go ahead and bring it in to the yard limits and switch out those cars or build the train and set it out on the departure track. So you just called it the last mile, but it's not really the last mile. That's where all the work is, is happening in the shunting yard, connect cars and wagons and I'm not sure if it's the same as autonomous vehicle or, you know, those scooters they use, like bird. So it's not really last mile. It's like, it's a whole section. And th that's exactly what this question is all about. How long will it take? Do you think it's going to be 20 years, 30 years, maybe 15 years? What do you say? No, I think it's actually a lot sooner. I really believe with the pressures in the economy or supply chain, it will incentivize technology growth. In that we'll, we'll see regulation kind of catch up with where the technology is at. Yeah, I do believe in five to seven years, we'll see, you know, that level four autonomous operation where you still have humans in the loop to handle exceptions, but most of the time the, the operation is, is proceeding. And I think it'll be mainstream with intent. Mainstream intent. So full implementation in 10 years, and that's in the U.S. Railspire is operating in the U.S. today, but I think globally, we look at operations over in Australia and Europe. I mean, the railroads over there are adopting that technology. We see over in Europe and in the U.K., you know, autonomous technology is really accelerating over the last, you know, year, year and a half. So I think them setting a precedent and then, you know, bringing all lessons learned here in the U.S., Europe, Australia will, will lead the way a little bit. And then here in the U.S. will be a fast follower. Interesting. And, and what are the challenges? Especially like the HR challenge. Yeah, look, they're absolutely, you know, it's the elephant in the room when we talk about automation, right, is with labor, right, and labor relations. And so I use a couple examples. We've been through four industrial revolutions, right? Right. Maybe this will be good. Maybe we can all retire to the beach, you know, have little drinks with umbrellas in them. And the reality is all we ended up doing is creating more work for ourselves. And, and not to say that, that, you know, jobs didn't change. Yes, jobs did change. The, the role of the workforce did shift, but the net of it was growth. And that, I think, is going to be the same thing here. Well, the reality is we have a shortage of workers in the workforce in the rail industry. And so, you know, this helps place resources, you know, really those valuable labor resources in roles that are better fit where you need, where the technology is not ready to, to have help or can only assist and not actually automate. And, you know, get them into, into that role where they can add value and benefit. So you got to think about a job where you're sitting there waiting 20, 30 minutes, then you move about 60 feet and then you wait 20, 30 minutes and then you move 60 feet and you do the, it's a very monotonous and boring job. I completely so it's agree. It's really about a reallocation of resources, right? We look at Rio Tinto, right? That's the best example we have because they, they're running a fully autonomous driverless train. You still need engineers. Technology will, does fail. And so you still need engineers to go out and 
recover trains and deal with issues. You still need these operators in your fleet to go handle other things. Yeah. And so, like I said, I think, I think we'll see a slow transition of, of the role will evolve and adapt over time, but it, it's not like we're going to throw the switch automation comes on and then, you know, a bunch of people lose their jobs. No, that's, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we're already dealing with a, you know, a deficit of, of resources. We're going to try to bridge that with technology. And then we're going to look at how can we grow? How can we make our supply chain more robust and then re reallocate those resources to areas that maybe improve safety, right? You know, we unfortunately had a very horrible accident here in the U.S. Uh, about two months ago. We can look at, okay, those resources now can be deployed to work on those areas. Like I said, we'll see that shift of roles and responsibilities slowly. And I think at the end of it, we will come out, net more work, net more and more jobs. Right, these folks need to maintain that technology and things like that. Basically, we'll come back stronger. A absolutely. Are there any other challenges? Like you're using 50-year-old locomotives, right, or 30-year-old locomotives. Are there any challenges with retrofitting them with uh, all this technology? The rail industry is, is a marvel, and fundamentally, very little has changed from diesel into you know battery electric locomotives. But even still, they the electromechanical interfaces of how we deal with throttle notches, the air brake system, those have been around for 100 plus years. And it's it's amazing that something like that has lasted that long based on the rate of innovation and technology growth that we've seen over the last century. And so we could take a 40-year-old locomotive, instrument it with some computers and technology. Are there any regulations challenges? Well, regulatory's role is to be very conservative and slow. But at the same time, you know, it can't be so slow that it holds back progress. We have the AAR and they have a committee that includes FRA to look at automation technologies, put together an architecture on the technology, put together testing plans, and they control the manner that this technology could be adopted and utilized so that it's done in a manner that everybody can feel comfortable with versus every individual trying to go out and do their own thing. It's a good time to thank all those regulators because those are the people who are going to keep us safe and make sure the chain will stay on track. Does the technology, all those wires, cables, computers, do they require any daily maintenance or monthly? Uh, so the, the technology typically is very low maintenance. However, that's not to say there's not an impact to maintenance by automation. There's really two big impacts that the automation technology brings on the maintenance side. Uh, the first is, is, well, now you have all this technology on the locomotive. And so you can get better data, better insights. And so your maintenance strategy can become more intelligent. The second side of it, though, is you've reduced variance in your operation. We saw this, for example, on the auto haul program, where when a train's coming into a stop, when a human operates it, it stops. You know, there's a randomness to where it stops, how it stops, et cetera, right? And that wears on the rail very randomly. Well, when we introduce autonomous technology to the train, it stops the same way at the same place roughly every single time. And so you're wearing out that section of rail a lot quicker. And so you actually have to perform more maintenance on that, that, that smaller section of rail versus less maintenance across a wider section of rail. Additionally, making it more efficient, right? That's you're talking about efficiency. It's efficiency because you, you don't necessarily have to, to have, guess where the wear and tear is. You kind of know, but you're going to do it more often. 
and kind of coming back to the, the sensors and, and trying to make your, your mates more intelligent, that's a very important aspect of it. Think about when you're driving your vehicle or something like that and you hear a weird noise. Oh, that doesn't sound right. That sounds different, right? And so you, you kind of take the mechanic and say, hey, it's making this funny noise. You know, there's a really bad creak or whatever. And they go, oh, well, you know, the strut or yeah, you got the, you know, the belts on your car are wearing thin, et cetera. Well, it's the same thing. Locomotive engineers driving the locomotive and they learn the responsiveness of the engine. They learn the sound, how the world is ramping up. When you take the, the engine out of the cab, you lose that sense, right? That perspective. So you got to rely on the technology and these sensors in order to, to replace that tribal feedback. Also, um, regarding that specific matter, engineers take time to train. Even a very well-trained engineer, I, I presume, won't be able to inspect every single aspect of a locomotive or its wagons or cars, and technology will help with this as well. Absolutely. Bringing technology in and, and treating it in an assistive role rather than a replacement is the key. You know, humans are prone to error, not because they're malicious or intentions, just it happens. Yep. That human factor, technology can help it in that and, uh, and do inspections, do more redundant inspections, treat technology, as, especially automation, as an assistive tool, not a replacement or, or an end solution. True. I do want to ask you, why do you think it took so long to get here? So, I'll actually kind of push back on that a little bit and say they adopted the technology. So it, it's been, you know, a project just hasn't been in the forefront of folks' daily lives like a vehicle or, or trucking would. And I think the the adoption is a little bit slower. Um, and maybe that's because, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles being a consumer facing, you know, there's a higher pressure or demand. People want it where when we look at autonomy, it was first introduced as a labor savings. And as it evolved and they figured out what it is, how it can be used, They've kind of come around and say, yeah, you know what? It's not this thing that's just going to send us to the beach in retirement, but it's rather going to allow us to do more work and do more things and, and treat it as a tool. So I think that's taking time. I think also there's a vast network that has to be thought about, right? It's, rail is fundamental to the U.S. economy and its supply chain. And so any change in that can have downstream ripples that could be catastrophic right and it gets amplified yeah introducing technology and introducing things that can impact that critical vein of u.s economy is understanding that the consequences could be vital so between us we've mentioned the maritime automotive and even flight industry it looks like they're all there hopefully the train industry will get there faster right right i mean so autopilot in, in aerospace has proven that the autopilots can be safe, right? We, we fly every, you know, hundreds of planes, hundreds of flights every day, and that is safe, right? So we've proven that automation technology can be safe. So I will say this, I think what we're going to see from an adoption standpoint is we're actually going to see, particularly here in the U.S., we'll see smaller railroads, what we call short ones, adopt uh, automation technology before the class ones. That's really unique because typically your class ones are, are the technology drivers. They can even afford to invest and incentivize vendors to innovate in this space. However, I think this is going to be a very unique experience in that it's going to be what we call the short lines, uh, those smaller railroads that actually drive automation. And then we'll see the class ones methodically adopt it based on what, what some of those short lines have done. I would like to thank you for your time and your knowledge and expertise 
um, and hopefully we'll get there sooner than later. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, I think uh, it's an exciting time to be in rail. It's one of the most complex challenges because you're dealing with legacy equipment, bringing modern technology, bringing it together to do really interesting and new things. And it has a real impact on people's lives, right? We're dealing with, with higher inflation here in the U.S. Day-to-day -day lives are being impacted, you know, cash flow and ability to afford groceries and things like that. The work that we're doing and helping drive technology into the rail industry are going to help mitigate drive the economy and drive, yeah, drive the, economy. the economy, right? If we can better, more efficient way to move goods from point A to point B, that drives costs down and that, that translates into people's daily lives. I couldn't agree more. Ladies and gentlemen, Rag Reback, again, I thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and looking forward to seeing uh, how technology grows and makes the world a better place. I'm sure everybody thinks the same way. And for you, our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to come back and get the latest Rail Evolution.